Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to the second season of Book Tour. In this episode, I visit the legendary independent bookstore Rainy Day Books in Kansas City. My guests at Unity Temple on the plaza are Rainy Day owners Vivian Jennings and Roger Doran and best-selling historian Candace Millard. Thanks for listening. Let's start the show. Well, I guess I better tell you who our guests are. Um, so I'm Vivian Jennings, the founder and president of Rainy Day Books. Thank you for all for coming tonight. Thank you. And besides my guest who's in the middle, my guest on the other side is who's going to be in our conversation. I hope you know who Candace Millard is because... lives in Kansas City, yes, and is, is a, has three New York Times bestsellers, uh, The River of Doubt, which is about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Destiny of the Republic, which is about the assassination of Garfield, and the new one, Hero of the Empire, which is about the young Churchill during the Boer War in South Africa. So she is our star in Kansas City, and by the way, she's a national star, too. So, but... <laughs> And then this guy in the middle. <laughs> um, you may have heard of. I told him sure. today that he actually was part of my bucket list <laughs> because I've been in business. It'll be, I'm sorry, 43 years. To see before you die. <laughs> <laughs> this November, and so I've I I loved him from the time the firm came out, and I didn't get to meet him when he was selling the, the a Time to Kill out of the trunk of his car. But however, after that, big fan and so forth. So this is a big, big night. I know it's a big night for you, but it's also a very big night for me. So let's have a welcome for both of them. Now, Mr. Grisham has the microphone, so he's going to really run this tonight. So we'll see. Well, thank, first of all, I'm, I'm very happy to be back in Kansas City. I've been here a number of times. Um, the first time I recall was probably 15 years ago when Hallmark Hall of Fame Classics adapted a book called A Painted House and uh, did a wonderful job. And they invited me to come here to see the movie, to kind of have a little premiere. And we had a wonderful visit with the Hall family and uh, they, they treated me very, very nice. And um, I've been back twice I can think of to do fundraisers for the uh, Midwest Innocence Project, uh, a, a group I stumbled across when I was um, writing my only work of nonfiction, a book called The Innocent Man that's set in Oklahoma, true story, but one of the defendants um, is and was Dennis Fritz from Kansas City. And there are several scenes in the book that take place in Kansas City back in the, back in the 80s. Uh, I came one weekend just to watch baseball, <laughs> so I've been here, uh, been here several times, and I always enjoy visiting Kansas City. Um, book touring, um, something I quit for 20 years, and uh, started again back in the spring with a book called Camino Island, and um, I had so much fun going to 13 bookstores with Camino, I decided to tour a little bit in the fall with uh, Rooster Bar. 
And we had, somebody had this idea. Uh, I had never, when it comes to technology, I'm, I'm not really that sharp. I mean, I'm kind of on the caveman side. And somebody mentioned a podcast. And I'd heard a podcast, but I didn't know what they were. And someone suggested that, that I go on the book tour and I sign books in stores. And then once that's finished, that I invite local writers to come do this, have a conversation, and record it, and then clean it up, edit, polish it, and post it. I'm sorry, drop it. You don't, you don't post it. <laughs> That's pretty good. Are you impressed? I mean, it's, it's, uh, you, don't, you don't publish you know your more than I. Yeah. <laughs> you drop a podcast, and uh, we did 13 of them uh, back in the spring. It's called Book Tour with uh, John Grisham. And uh, I have no idea how many folks have listened to it. Uh, don't really care because I'm having fun. And so <laughs> when we decided to do uh, this tour, I, I met Vivian years ago, and I met her, I saw her again back in the spring. And when Vivian uh, really wants you to do something, it's, uh, it's pretty hard to say no. And uh, <laughs> she asked me to come to Kansas City, and I said, sure. As we, we, were, as we were planning the um, tour, um, we were looking at local writers. Who could we get? And of course, uh, Candace's name came to the top, and I'm delighted to be here with her tonight. We're going to talk about uh, her books, and um, the three of us are under the rules of the podcast, and there are no rules. There, there's no script, there's no nothing, you just do what you want to do. We're going to ask each other questions and uh, ramble for a while, talk about reading and writing and book selling and um, and then we'll take some questions from the floor and see what you want to talk about. The whole thing lasts about an hour, so it's not going to be a late night. Uh, one thing I've enjoyed uh, with the tour is going to bookstores. I love bookstores. The Independents, uh, they were uh, crucial 26 years ago when I published The Firm. The Independents got behind the book, and they made it, a, uh, they made it very popular and accessible, and it found a, a market quickly because of the support from The Independents. And in the past... Well, since then, in 25 years, we've lost probably 3,000 bookstores in this country. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them are independents. And so we, we treasure writers, publishers, we treasure uh, people like Vivian who, who run a store and keep it going and, and support, um, support us. And so with that in mind, Vivian, uh, you know, I always start off by talking about the bookstore. Um, how old is Rainy Day, and when did you start, and what were you thinking way back then? <laughs> I started in 1975, so this I'll be starting my 43rd year, November 4th. And thank you. Thank you. And I'll tell you why I'm still around. Well, first of all, I'm really I'm a hard-headed woman. My partner Roger will tell you that. And I'm pretty feisty, but I'll tell you that the reason that Randy Books is still in this community is because, I'm, it makes me cry, is because of all of you. Let me tell you something. The Kansas City Chiefs are playing tonight, Denver, and you people are here. So we have this wonderful relationship with the community and a lot of the community organizations and businesses and so forth. So that's just been a great, really romance, I think, all these years. And so thank you so much for your support. And my, I, the idea was is that I fell in love with reading when I was in grade school. 
and I read Girl of the Limberlost, which they have now reprinted finally, and Nancy Drew, and I was telling John this afternoon, I decided if Nancy Drew was going to have a roadster one day, even though I was born really poor, I would have that roadster. And books opened a world for me that I have never looked back. I was able to go to college. I, was a, I actually studied international relations, international law. Um, I still think I practice some diplomacy every day. And, uh, but I married a writer, actually. But when my kids got old enough to go to school, I wanted to do something, and I had this passion for books. So I decided to open a little bookstore. I had, you could never do this today. I had $2,000 of my own money. And uh, there was a little four foot, 450 square foot space in the fairway shops that was the old police station and jail. So really, really bad. <laughs> um, and so I asked the landlord, they were going to tear it down. And I said, well, if you leave it, and you know, how, my rent was $200 a month, you all. $200. But I can still remember a day when we had a day in the first year when the day was $14. That's all I made. Because I started in the used paperback business. But then I went on, and as I made a little money, I grew a little and so forth. And so we, and then eventually we got into doing the author events and things. And so we're still standing. So, <laughs> so uh, when you started in 1975, how many independent bookstores were there in the Kansas City area? Well, um, there were about 25. And you know, around 25, 25 to 30, I think, bookstores. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how many independents today? One. One. That's what's happened to the marketplace, right? Yep. All right, here, here's a tough question. Um, what's going to happen 10 years from now? How many bookstores are you going to have? In, in, independent bookstores are you going to have? I think that independents are coming back across the country. And I think it, uh, there's some factors. The expense is the one big factor. Right. The real estate costs are so high. Um, you know, the, everything is high. Payroll's high. Everything that you look at is so expensive. And so that's one of the things that sort of challenges it because we work on a very low margin. And that's always a challenge, too. So, but I, I've noticed it across the country, not so much here, although people read in the big wheat field. They do. I want you to know that. They do. You're all here. But um, they, there has been a resurgence, and so I'm, I'm thinking, and I'd be happy to have it. I mean, I, I would love to have some colleagues here. I was happy when they were here before. Be happy to have. And there's some young people who may just decide that they're feisty, too, and that that's right. what they want to do, and they'll do it. So do you and Roger have a succession plan? You know, John, people ask right well, Other than me, just dying, I mean. That's it. <laughs> our exit. <laughs> people ask us all the time, what's our exit plan or whatever? And I go, that would be death. <laughs> so we love what we do. We love you all. We love doing this for you. I always say, when I introduce them, sometimes I say, we serve the feast for you. We love doing these, things, these author events for you. And we thank, the other thing we have to super thank is the authors who come through because that's a huge part of our business is the, you know what, it's the experience we're, we're wanting to share with you. We're wanting to give you something. I want books to be a part of everyone's life. I really want that because it's meant so much to me. And so what we try to do is say, you know what, I know you like sports, I know you like other things, but the book experience can be just as great because we're really, we're really seeking your time. It's not the money, it's not the money, it's the time. Everybody has just so much time when they have, when they can do something that's entertaining. And so that's what we're trying to do is give you 
an experience that's absolutely, you think, I have to go. See, you're here instead of football. There you go. So in my last novel, uh, Camino Island, which was published in, in June, it's, it's not a legal thriller. I tried to write the entire book with no lawyers, and, um, and I almost pulled it off. I had to get, I got into the very last chapter and kind of wrote myself into a corner where I had to use some lawyers, but I got them off the stage real quick. Uh, it's, the focal point is a bookstore in a small town in Florida, resort town. It's owned by a guy who um, makes a good living off the bookstore. He makes a lot of money with rare books. He, um, he's kind of a playboy. He does very well with the ladies. Yes, he he uh, has a long lunch every day with wine. He reads four or five books a week. And he has a sharp uh, uh, wardrobe and a good life. And he has no staff in the bookstore. So how, uh, how realistic is that? <laughs> So unrealistic. So unrealistic. Thank God for fiction. Huh? Very, very fictional, and the and, and everything. But it's it's. I have to tell you, if you haven't read Camino Island, you have to read it. It's so fun. You'll see that he has a great sense of humor in the book, for one thing. But I think that that it's just it, it is a situation where you know you this business you have. I'll just tell you, you have to love it. I don't, I don't know anybody who's in our business who doesn't love books right. and love it. Right. That's why you do it. Across this country, that's why we do it. We love it. We love it. Right. All right. Okay, enough of you for a while. Uh, <laughs> so, Candace, how long have you been in Kansas City? Um, I've been here 15 years. The, this last time, I've actually lived here three different times. I moved here um, right before my senior year of high school. My dad worked for United Telephone of Ohio, and he was transferred to Sprint, which is headquartered here. And then um, I went to college here, a little liberal arts school called Baker University. And there you go. It's nice with the hometown crowd. Nobody else has ever heard of Baker. Um, and then I went away for graduate school and came back. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. to work for National Geographic. And then uh, when I got married um, started having kids, I came back. It's such a great place to live. I love Kansas City. And just really quickly, I wanted to say thank you so much to Vivian Roger for Rainy Day Books. Like all of you, I know I love it. And I'm there every week, almost every day. We, unfortunately, it's dangerous for me because we pass it on the way from between my office and the school. So I'm always like, ah, there's something else. I have to stop and my kids. I love it. And um, I also want to say thanks to John, who is this amazing writer and such a great guy. I was obviously nervous when I found out I was going to do this. And everybody I talked to is like, it's okay. He's really nice. He's really, really nice. And um, I had lunch with him today. I'm like, it's true. He's really nice. So anyway, this is not you. 60 minutes. Okay. You're, you're, you're. <laughs> so let's talk about writing. I mean, was it something you had, how, how far back does the dream go? Was did you dream of it? Did you plan it? Did you study it? Was it something you... Um, no, I think, like we were talking earlier, I was just a kid who loved books. I grew up in this very small town in Ohio, and um, there wasn't a, a lot to do. We, would, we could swim, we could go ice skating in the winter, uh, but there was a great library, and I would go to the library all the time. You could walk there from my house, and, um, and I... It, actually didn't even occur to me that I could be a writer. I didn't know anybody who was a writer. I just loved books, and I wanted to do something with books. And so I thought I would be a teacher or a librarian, um, both of which I would have loved. Um, and it wasn't until I was in graduate school, I thought I was going to go on and get my PhD and teach. 
And I hated Lit Crit. Everything was about Lit Crit at that point. And I thought, maybe I can write. And even, it was, definitely I wasn't thinking books. I was thinking magazines and things. And so I moved back to Kansas City, penniless, moved in with my parents. And my husband knows the story because I literally opened the yellow pages and I called every publisher in Kansas City looking for a job and everybody turned me down. And I almost didn't call the last number in the yellow pages, the last publisher, which was Ulig LLC, which if any of you know me, that's my last name now. And uh, <laughs> so... Thank God I made that call. How old are they publishing? <laughs> so um, my husband, who is here, he was a he was a born correspondent, a war correspondent with the New York Times for years, and had left to go to law school and start this company. He'd grown up in Wichita, and so he decided to come to Kansas City, luckily for me, and start this company. And it's software development, and I'm not going to destroy it trying to describe it. It's very complicated and cool. Um, you have to ask him about it. But um, anyway, he, happily, he was the only person who said yes, and I came in and did some um, proofreading for him, and it wasn't until I got a different job, completely different job, full-time, that we started dating. It was a totally different place, wasn't working for him at that time, and then we started dating. <laughs> so how did the job with the geographic come about? So when I started working for these a bunch of different trade journals in Kansas City, um, I started thinking, this is great, but I want to change my life. What can I do that would be different? And I thought maybe I could join the Peace Corps. And so I thought I can learn a language, I can go somewhere, I can have experiences, and I can become a writer. And so um, everything goes back to my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time. And this is not an exaggeration. It was literally my boyfriend's college roommate's twin brother's friend who worked at National Geographic. I'm not kidding. And um, so <laughs> the, the college roommate's twin brother had been in P the Peace Corps with, in Sierra Leone. And I thought, if I'm going to do this, I should go talk to him. And I, I went to Washington, D.C., and I had a little voucher to help pay for it. Again, I was making like $18,000 a year. And um, we had dinner that night before we were going to go to the Peace Corps. And he said, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd work at National Geographic. But, you know, I have no. And he was like, well, I have a friend who works there. And so the next day we stopped um, on the way to the Peace Corps, but we never made the Peace Corps. And uh, this guy told me about a job in the research department in the TV division. And I got that job and um, pretty quickly was able to move to the magazine. What was the first piece you wrote for the Geographic? So I wrote my favorite piece. I wrote a couple of smaller things. I wrote about dinosaur eggs in Peru. I wrote dinosaur about, eggs in Peru. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's National Geographic. My husband would always make fun of him. He'd be like, "That's not a job. That's just not a job." And I wrote about these people in Mongolia who use eagles to hunt with. Still, they what? Um, use eagles oh. to hunt with. Oh. And then um, my favorite is I, I wrote about the Kingdom of Aksum in Ethiopia which um, still claims to have the Ark of the Covenant. It's just this incredible story. It's a beautiful, beautiful place with beautiful people and just was one of the um, most extraordinary experiences of my life. How long did you write for the Geographic? Six years. And then what happened? And then I got married and then I was still living in Washington um, and then I got pregnant with my first child and I thought I should probably live with my husband at some point. It'd be 
traditional. Um, so he said, uh, why don't you write a book? And I thought, I have no idea how to <laughs> write a book or how to convince somebody to let me write a book. But he knew the publishing world very well, and so um, I was actually having uh, lunch with a good friend of ours, of his, I had met through him, named James Chase, who some of you may know James Chase's work. He wrote the definitive Dean Acheson biography and um, just, just an incredible person. And he had just written a book called 1912, which is about the election that precedes this trip that Theodore Roosevelt took in the Amazon. And I'll never forget, I was having lunch with him, and I told him I was looking for a book idea, and he said, well, do you know about this trip that... Roosevelt took in the Amazon, and uh, he had a biography of Roosevelt, and it's after his active political career, so most biographies just have a couple of paragraphs, and he read this and he said, and the river is called the river of doubt, there's your title. And, um, and I went back to work, and I was started doing some research, and I was like, oh my God, you know, a man drowned on this trip, someone was murdered, Roosevelt nearly took his own life, it was just, and it's set in the Amazon, I can talk about the Amazon, and, um, and so, and it sold pretty quickly. You sold the ideal pretty quickly? Mm-hmm. For an advance? Yeah. Who was your publisher? Doubleday. Doubleday, okay. <laughs> Still Doubleday. Yeah. And so you, you had to go research it, right? Right. I got to go research it. And this is in the Amazon Basin? Yeah, well, yeah. it was in the highlands. The, um, this river, um, unlike, so the Amazon is wide and sluggish. Um, the River of Doubt is one of the tributaries, and it comes out of the Brazilian highlands. And, um, and it flows south to north, actually. And, um, and it's really, really fast and choked with rapids. And, uh, you know, it even doubles back on itself. It's so, so twisting and just unbelievably dangerous. It's frankly amazing any of them survive this. So you never got trip. on the river? I was on the, on the river, yeah. I was for, on, for how long? So I was in the Amazon for almost a month. By yourself? And no, my husband, I brought my war correspondent husband with me, which is actually a really, really, really good idea. But um, you had local guides and you, you were... Yeah, you, we you had a guide um, with us, um, but he was this unusual guy. He, he had spent a lot of time in the Amazon as a freelance journalist, um, but he was a strange combination of being incredibly trepid and um, hypochondriac. So we... Uh, <laughs> I'm not kidding. So we have to rent this plane. We go to this little town called Porto Velho. We rent this little single-engine plane, and we fly for hours over unbroken jungle, horizon to horizon. This river is still incredibly remote. And we land um, in the northern reaches by the Metarina, and we get there, and he decides that he's having a heart attack. He's just convinced he's going to have a, he's having a heart attack. And this is your guide or your pilot? Our guide, and um, so he's like, I've got to take the pilot and go back because I'm having. And we, were, my husband and I, were like, okay, but please come back. You know, <laughs> we were like in the middle of nowhere. And um, so he leaves, and then he does come back. But our original pilot, who's who's older and very experienced couldn't come back with him. So he comes back with this kid. And we stop one day in this rubber tapping village. And, you know, it's a, it's the rainforest and it's during the rainy season. So obviously there's a lot of rain, there's a lot of moisture in the air. And we spend like a day in this rubber tapping village. We come back to the plane and he doesn't sump the tank. He doesn't get the moisture out. I don't know anything about planes. My husband does. We get in and 
for flying, and you know these small planes are really loud, and it's and all of a sudden it's and it was just silent. And the water had gotten in the engine, and the single engine went out. And you know, I'm with this this my guide whose eyes are like wow, and. Uh, <laughs> What about your husband's eyes? <laughs> well, he was up front with the pilot, and the pilot's really clawing, clawing at the... And I'm thinking, we, our oldest daughter, who's 15 now, she was eight months old at that time. She was here in Kansas City with my parents, and I'm like, I'm an idiot. I've just orphaned our child, you know? And we just dropped like a stone, and uh, amazingly, he was able to get it restarted as we were falling. And we, we pulled back out, um, but uh, he, he was so terrified, he was basically useless to me after that, because he just, he just your, wanted your to husband, land. Your husband or the guy? <laughs> no, my husband could have flown it. I, he would have gotten, but the pilot, the pilot, he just wanted to be on land, and uh, you know, I worked really hard to get there. This is my one chance to, to get all this information. And I mean, interestingly, just a couple months later, um, two freelance photographers for National Geographic were killed in a, in a plane crash over the Rio Negro. So, you know, it happens. We were we were lucky. I just go to courtrooms to do research. <laughs> Well, I, speaking of research, I want to ask you a question because nobody here wants to hear me talk. You, if you have any questions, you can ask me in the grocery store or something. You know, we, you'll see me. The, no, no, this is my show now. This is my show. <laughs> I want to ask John. I want to ask you about your research, obviously for the innocent man. But all these, I, we were talking about Camino Island earlier. I loved it. It's such a great book. It's such a fun, fast fascinating read and there's so much in there like my favorite thing is the story obviously but I love the details about this the sea turtles and the rare books and the French antiques from those all these great details that you obviously did quite a bit of research thank God for Google uh, <laughs> uh, I know a little bit about uh, rare books uh, I collect some I'm not a serious collector about 25 years ago, we were living in Oxford, Mississippi, and a friend of ours had a copy of a book called The Marble Fawn, mm -hmm. which was a self-published thin volume of poetry written by William Faulkner mm -hmm. when he was 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And you can't read this stuff like most Faulkner, but he, um, <laughs> he, pay, he paid for his own publication. There were, I don't know how many copies there were back then, but our friend had uh, one copy, and he wanted to sell it. And my wife went behind my back and bought it for me for Christmas. And so wow. it was my first rare edition. I still got it, and it's it's you know it's valuable. And over the years, uh, and I, I, I kind of I got a kick out of it. And so uh, over the years, for for birthdays and Christmas and anniversaries, if if there's something good on the market, uh, Renee will buy that for me. And, and after 25 years, I've got a lot of. Um, most of Faulkner, he wrote, he wrote a lot of books. Uh, most of Fitzgerald, he only wrote five novels, but several collections of short stories. Uh, most of Hemingway, most of Steinbeck, and some other uh, 20th century. That's just, that's my thing. I enjoy doing it. So I know a little bit about the market. I know some of the dealers, and I know um, where to go to find how much a book is worth. It's, it's fairly easy to do if you know where to go. And I'm kind of always looking for a rare book and trying to include other writers. So that's kind of my hobby. Again, it's the only, it's the only thing I collect. 
And um, is it mostly bookstores who also deal with rare books, or is it specifically rare books? Yeah, books? there are a couple of guys who own bookstores who will deal in the rare stuff. Uh, there are a couple of dealers who do nothing but that. And and when I was writing in Camino Island, it's about stolen manuscripts and stolen books. And I had a hard time finding anybody who knew anything about stolen books. <laughs> uh, the, the theft of rare books and manuscripts is a real problem in the world and has been, it's been getting worse for the past 20 years because uh, you know, typically libraries are not you know, big on security until now. They've all beefed up a lot because there have been some spectacular uh, heist in the past several years. And my wife and I were um, uh, taking a trip one day in the car, listening to NPR, and there was a story about some stolen books. And we started just talking about this idea of, of a mystery about involving stolen books. And one thing led to the other. And that's how Camino Island came about. It was just, uh, you know, I, I write a legal thriller every year. Um, but I've also, sometimes I write something. I get bored and write other things. I've written... <laughs> Uh, yeah. The Innocent Man, which is my, my only nonfiction book, uh, some sports books, uh, some kids' books, things like that. You know, people, people want the legal thriller every October. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. I have no plans to quit. Uh, they're, they're still very popular. Uh, but normally, I mean, I write those from January to July. It's about a six-month period. And then usually by Labor Day, I'm bored, and I start looking for something else to write. And like I am now, I mean, I'm not writing a book now, but I'm playing around with stuff that will never get published. But what was your question? I forgot what you were going to Oh, uh, <laughs> well, John, John, but could you talk, talk, a, little bit, about, talk a little bit about, okay. because you were, she was asking about research, but talk to, talk to them, explain to them about what you didn't do before you wrote Camino Island about research with Princeton and then what you were just able to do on this tour? Well, first of all, when it comes to research, had I known that the Broncos were in town tonight, <laughs> that's my bad, okay? Um, we could have started in Wichita tonight and Kansas City tomorrow night. Um, so the first chapter of... Uh, uh, Camino Island deals with the theft of the Fitzgerald manuscripts from the Firestone Library on the campus at Princeton. And I, I picked Fitzgerald because um, he only had five novels. And I could just see five big, thick manuscripts hidden somewhere in the basement at Princeton. That's not the way it is. Um, Faulkner, I've seen the Faulkner manuscripts. They're, they're, they're Virginia in the library there. But there are 40 of them because Faulkner wrote at least 40 books. Uh, the Hemingway stuff is scattered. It's, it's not in one place. Uh, the Steinbeck stuff is scattered. In fact, UVA owns uh, the first draft, type draft, of The Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck's book. It was sold to UVA by one of his heirs who needed some money. But, but Fitzgerald is all in one place. And I said, okay, this is where I'm going to stage my heist. So I wrote this, this first chapter that, that factually nothing is even remotely accurate, okay? And, and, and I, I, didn't, I didn't want it to be. When, when the book came out, I, I wrote this author's note where I disclaimed anything to do with, with reality uh, or being factually accurate, because I'm known to be inaccurate anyway. And um, I, didn't want any, I didn't want anybody to have the wrong ideas about how to steal something valuable. And again, theft is a problem in, in this world. And so the book... The book was coming out on June the 6th, and I, um, I was talking to my agent, and I said, you know, 
I, I sort of feel sorry for Princeton because they're about to get ambushed with this book about the theft of their most valuable <coughs> asset. And should we at least notify them and send them a copy? And I mean, <laughs> they can't do anything. They, could, they couldn't stop publication. They couldn't file a lawsuit. You know, it's not actionable. And uh, everybody said, no, you, don't, you never do it. You never give me any warning. Just let, let it slide. <laughs> The lawyers got involved and gave me the... So, uh, so the book was published in, in June, and um, I mean, I wasn't waiting on any kind of reaction out of Princeton, but uh, I finally got a letter from the librarian there, and it turns out they have a sense of humor. And, <laughs> That's good to know. And they invited me to come to uh, the library and uh, look at the manuscripts and give a talk, and I did that uh, Wednesday of last week. And they took me to the basement. Well, they didn't call it a basement. It's down several flights uh, way under the main library. And took, me, took us into a, this big room, beautiful conference room. And they pulled out the, uh, the original Fitzgerald manuscripts. And, um, and I saw the, uh, the original uh, uh, pencil-written, handwritten draft of um, This Side of Paradise, which he wrote 100 years ago at Princeton, 1917. He was working at then. And then they showed me the, uh, the original handwritten draft of, uh, of uh, The Great Gatsby. And it was a, it was, it was a pretty a rare treat. And uh, I felt honored to, to be there. There were, there were a couple of librarians in the room who had been there for six and seven years who had never seen it. They, 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 they just don't pull it out. So it was a real honor. So. And they had quite a bit of security there. They had two guards in the room staring at me the whole time. Like, I'm, <laughs> what am I going to pull? You know, pull a job here? Pull, pull. <laughs> and we were so many levels down. We we walked in and we realized, you know, we kept walking down, 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 deeper and deeper into the library. And then when it was when we left, we got on an elevator to go back up. And I just noticed there were three levels below where we were. So somewhere deep down there is where they keep the good stuff. And um, I, one, of our, one of my friends asked uh, if we could see the vault. And uh, it was no. And um, then she asked later, can we see the vault? And it was no again. And so we weren't getting near the real vault. The real thing. But it was uh, pretty spectacular. Candace's researchers want to tell you, if you haven't read her books, it's, she told you the story, but the story is there for you when you read her books, because one of the things I always told people about reading River of Doubt, which was the first one we had, was that you are literally swatting mosquitoes. That's how real it is to be there on that journey. It's, she does just a fantastic job of that. All right, let's get back to that. What, what, what prompted Roosevelt to do that? Well, I mean, so he's, he, was going through, he was 55 years old. He's going through a crisis. Yeah, he, he, yeah, so he ran for president again, the election of 1912, the Bull Moose Party, and he lost. And he was a pariah for the first time. He wasn't used to losing. And um, he, you know, he, he put a Democrat in the, in the White House for the first time in a long time. And he, uh, you know, was trying to prove something to himself and to everybody else. And he was invited to go on a speaking tour in South America, and he was this incredible naturalist, right. really extraordinary, and um, he thought, okay, I'll go on a collecting trip while I'm there, but he gets there and he has a meeting with the foreign minister of Brazil who says, well, you could go on a regular collecting trip, or you could do something more interesting, and we found the headwaters of this river. We have no idea where it goes. 
That's why it's called the Rio da Duvida, the, the River of Doubt. And um, they're totally unprepared. I mean, the, the person who had been um, supplying this Amazon expedition was a failed Arctic explorer, you know, so they were completely unprepared at, for at, even the collecting trip, but certainly for anything of this nature. But being Theodore Roosevelt, he said, absolutely, that's what I'm going to do. Well, okay, I read the book, love the book. Thank you. Uh, I love the storytelling. I love the history, but also the way you tell the story. And I'm sure everybody here has also read the book, but we're not going to ask for a show of hands because I made that mistake one time and I vowed never do it again. Um, but for all the millions of people out there who listen by podcast, okay, yeah. who or maybe hundreds, I don't know, but let's assume they haven't uh, read the book. I mean, they had a lot of questions, and there are a lot of questions that become obvious when you read the book. But how could somebody like Roosevelt, who had such a history of, uh, of extreme uh, adventures, who was a soldier who was always prepared, how could they be so unprepared and so ignorant about what they were getting into. Yeah, he wasn't, a paying, he wasn't paying attention for the first time. He had been on many expeditions, as you say. He'd been in the backwoods of Maine. He'd obviously been in the, the badlands of Dakota. He had been in Africa. And every time he had paid attention to every, every bit of the planning, and he was just devastated by this loss. He really, he suffered from a sort of depression and he wasn't paying attention and he handed it over and, and it wasn't until they got there and it was too late really to do anything about it um, that he realized, you know, we're in trouble but he was going to do it no matter what. You know, he used to always say he was willing to pay the piper for a good dance and, um, and he certainly paid the price for this. You know, he, he died just five years later. He was only 60. 60 years old. So the book comes out in 2005, mm -hmm. your, first, your first big book. And so at that time, did you have the next book in mind or were you still fishing around? I didn't. I was um, looking around. Um, we uh, had our second child who um, was sick um, when she was born. And so we had a lot of going on with that. And then um, I fell in love with, and I was going to ask you if you've ever had this experience. I, I fell in love with a story that... Um, I worked on for a year to try to make work and finally had to walk away. It was, um, it was about Benjamin Franklin and um, I was just doing some reading and I read the story about this house that Benjamin Franklin lived in London. It's the only surviving house, um, still surviving house where he lived and he lived there for 18 years right before the revolution and it had just fallen into disrepair, squatters were living in it. And um, the, this friends of Benjamin Franklin bought it, and they're renovating it, and they're working in the basement, and uh, this guy finds a bone, and he finds another bone, and another one, and he ends up finding 1,200 human bones. And so they call the police, and the police say, these are really old bones, you need a forensic anthropologist. And they date these bones to exactly the time when Benjamin Franklin was living in this house, and you're like, founding father serial murder? What, <laughs> what's going on? Um, so what happened is a that... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Old Ben was a cannibal. <laughs> yeah. um, what happened was that he rented um, two floors of this brownstone, which was right by the Thames, um, from this widow and her daughter, Polly. And Polly married this man, William Houston, who was a doctor and an anatomist when it was illegal to perform autopsies. 
So they were, there was literally a tunnel from this basement to the Thames where they would hire, you know, these resurrection men, grave robbers, to bring in these bodies. There's also, a, on the other side of the garden wall, there's a gallows where they would go and make deals with these poor, do, you, could be, you could be hanged for any of 400 different crimes, you know, opening somebody else's mail. And so they um, would make deals with these guys, look, you're going to be hanged tomorrow, sorry about that, I'll buy you a new set of clothes if you let me have your body afterwards. Um, so they were performing autopsies in this basement, um, and, and I know that Franklin was there, you know, he was this incredible scientist. There were no uh, medical schools in the United States at that time, so he was bringing medical students over to study with William Hewson, um, uh, but I, I don't have proof. I know all this happened, I absolutely know, but I don't have dialogue between him and Hewson, I don't have him in the, in the basement. And I've tracked It's called down. fiction. Just make it up. Okay? <laughs> you can. You should tell this story. Um, but what happens is that, so Houston becomes like a son to Franklin. And right before the revolution, so, you know, Franklin is a loyalist. He's actually trying to stop the revolution. And then he realizes he's on the wrong side and he's being forced out of England. Houston cuts himself and dies from septicemia. And Polly moves to Philadelphia. She's expecting her third child. She moves, brings her children to Philadelphia with, with Franklin. And I actually tracked down the descendants in Philadelphia and I begged them to tell me that they had a journal or something placing Franklin there and they don't. So I worked on it for, it broke my heart to finally say, it's, it's the British Enlightenment. He's friends with Erasmus Darwin. It's just this incredible story that <clears throat> I just, I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. How often does that happen, where you spend all that time and you can't... It happens... No, I've never spent a year. Right before... uh, uh, Actually, right after Hero, I just... I was trying to... uh, I was hoping to write about Marie Curie, and I spent a lot of time on her um, and kind of just realized most of the action takes place in her mind, and it's hard to make that a page-turner. But how about you? Have you ever walked away from an idea that you loved? I've walked away from a lot of ideas... Uh, but never after spending a year on something. Um, I'm too lazy to waste that much. Uh, there, there are a lot of ideas, uh, and you know, my ideas come out of the headlines. I just read newspapers and get the ideas because they're in the newspaper today. And a lot of them start off as you know brilliant, and then kind of run out of gas. Um, I mean, it, it, it's it's not unusual to have a, a great idea, a, a compelling. Uh, opening something that's high drama, you know, and and you you and a lot of writers do this. They'll they'll grab it, they'll take off, they'll run with it, they'll love it and love it and love it and write 200 pages, mm-hmm. and then realize they don't know where it's going or they can't end it. Right. And and walk away. And it's really sad. I mean, I, yeah. I have writer friends who do that, and I I call them idiots because you <laughs> you can't you can't work like that and waste that much time. Uh, you know, I have certain rules that I don't, I don't, not really rules because I, I break them all the time, but uh, one rule I have that, I, that I've always stuck with is never write the first scene until you know the last scene. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I live with every day. I mean, I, I, I outline the stories. I know where they're going. So I'm not going to jump into a story unless I know where it's going. I mean, mm-hmm. I start every year in January, so this time of the year I'm thinking about what the next idea is going to be. And I've got a couple, you know, I've got a couple 
hot prospects. Um, and when January the 1st gets here, I'll, uh, I'll pull the trigger on one. I think I know what it's going to be now. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing research and outlining and, you know, fleshing mm-hmm. the story out. So um, the more time I spend on the outline... And the planning, the easier the book is to write. Mm-hmm. Can you do that? Yeah, novels? absolutely. I, yeah, I, I spent like a year outlining. I spent a lot of time. You're the first writer in the history of America that I've talked to who will admit to using an outline other than myself. <laughs> I know. Most, I know. Of them, like, most of them say things like, yeah. well, I don't outline. I just, I have the inspiration. I have this character. And I stare yeah. at the screen until the character comes to life. <laughs> and then I go, I follow the character wherever he or she. That's bull. I mean, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> That's such BS. There's no way. You know, I mean, I, I live through my character. Oh, that's, yeah, that's sounds good, but it's not true. But most, very few writers will admit to outlining. And I tell students all the time, you know, if, you, if you're serious about writing, you've got to plan the story before you write anything. Yeah. That's not fun. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 it lets you see the whole story. I don't care if it's a three-page paper in English. Mm-hmm. You've got to plan it. Totally. And then the second part that's very un not any fun, is revising. Mm-hmm. You have to mm-hmm. revise and revise and revise. You never turn in a first draft mm-hmm. or a second draft or a third draft. Yeah, completely, completely agree. So your process is, is, is research, but it's also writing. So it's, it's a, a five-year, four-year, five-year? Yeah, it depends. So Hero of the Empire is five years. So it's, it's you know, 80% is research and outline and then do more research um, before I think about writing. Can you talk about what you're working on now? I can, yeah. Um, So it's going to be, the next book is about the discovery of the source of the Nile. Um, And it's a story I fell in love with uh, 20 years ago when I was at National Geographic. Um, So it's about these uh, two men, um, Richard Burton, who, this is like the 1850s, and um, he was just this incredible character. He was expelled from Oxford when he was 21. He taught himself 25 different languages plus another 15 dialects. Expel for what? (laughs) For not going to class, um, not doing any work, you know, uh, having zero respect for his professors. Um, And he... uh, and he was the, one of the first and by far the most famous person to enter the forbidden city of Mecca um, disguised as an Arab because his, his Arabic was so flawless. And you can imagine, I mean, it, he would have suffered a horrible, horrible death had he been discovered. So he's, he's obsessed with finding the source of the Nile, which was the holy grail of exploration at that time. And so he gets the Royal Geographical Society to um, send him to Africa. And he's there, and he meets this young man named um, John Hanning Speak, who's just a a, a British officer on leave from India. And he he meets Burton, and he talks him into letting him go along. And so they they head into the interior, and um, just this litany of horrors. My kids will hate hearing these stories again, but they're attacked one night by this group of Somalis. Um, One man is killed. Speak is kidnapped stabbed 11 times before he can escape. Burton has a, a spear thrust through his jaw from, from cheek to cheek, um, and he has this great scar on his face for the rest of his life. They survive that. They keep going. They're so sick. I mean, Speak is literally half, half deaf because a, a beetle climbed into his ear one night, and out of desperation to get it out, he, he put a knife in his ear, and... Uh, 
finally got it out, but deafened himself for the rest of his life. You love the insects, don't you? <laughs> you know, I do. He, he has a horrible eye infection, so he's partly blind, and um, Burton has such severe malaria, he's, he's literally paralyzed for almost a year. They have to carry him. So they finally get to what is Lake Tanganyika, and Burton thinks that's the source. He's too ill to go on. So Sweet goes on with this incredible guide. They have this guy named Sidi Mubarak Bombay, who was kidnapped as a child from Africa, taken to India as a slave. Uh, when his owner died, he returned to Africa, and he becomes by far the most accomplished guide in the history of African exploration. So he's, he's speaking Burton's guide. He's um, then later speaking James Grant's guide. And then he's Henry Morton Stanley's guide when he finds David Livingston. There's just extra, extraordinary guy. So he takes speak on to Lake Victoria, which happens to be the, the source of the Nile. So by this weird twist of fate, this guy who has no experience, knows nothing about Africa, ends up being the guy to discover the source. And anyway, it goes on and on. It has this sort of tragic twist on the, at the end, but that's the story. Wow. <laughs> and you don't mind telling the whole story, do you? <laughs> That's so unusual. I have to tell you, that's so unusual because most writers, if you ask them, they're very cagey. They're, so you can tell that Candace done so much work on this. Nobody else is going to do that. No. But they're normally worried that somebody's going to grab the idea and go. But I had something to ask you because um, I know that I know what you said. I get ideas from headlines and so forth. So I have two questions for you. One is, a lot, I know also that a lot of people come up to you and say, judges, lawyers, they go, John, I've got the story you need to write. So what do you say to all of them when they say that? Well, it happens all the time. They'll, uh, they mean well, but they'll, they'll stop me and they'll say, um, I have a great idea for your next novel. <laughs> and I smile and I say, so do I. This other question for you, and, and let me see if I can get this out right. Um, Jeff Shara, when he was here a few years ago, I asked him, he has the most complete uh, library about American history and other history, world history too, in the world. So his father, you know, won the Pulitzer for the Killer Angels, and so he started writing these novels about American history. And I said, why do you write fiction? Because you weave these other things into it issues of the time as you do why do you always and you've written one nonfiction book but why do you usually write fiction and what his explanation was is he said Vivian he said I want people to think and understand our history and he said so more people read fiction than nonfiction now that's changing a little bit now but you have woven some very interesting uh, contemporary issues into your books but you you like doing it the fictional way yeah, I mean, there's no other More? way for me to do it, really. I mean, I, I, I take an issue, whatever the issue is. Rooster Bar is, 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 a, is about the student debt crisis. Exactly. And especially how it relates to uh, for-profit law schools, right. uh, which I did not know existed until a few years ago when I became aware that you can buy and sell a law school. They operate for profit. Mm -hmm. And there are a few of them left in the country. Uh, I think they're closing for obvious reasons, but uh, it's it's... It's, it's not a good way to, to educate people. I'm, I, I'm not sure I understand why we make profits from education to begin with. 
but, it, but especially as it relates to law schools and lawyers and law students who uh, take on huge sums of debt to pay to schools that are making a profit uh, for, uh, for subpar education and, and then not be able to find a job or to pass a bar exam. And that's what has been happening uh, with some of these schools over the past um, 10 years. So it was something that was, and the student debt crisis is, is, uh, it is a crisis. We have, we have $1.5 trillion in student debt that covers 44 million students, uh, about half of whom are in default or close to it. And the ones who are actually able to service their debt and stay afloat are doing so with heavy burdens. They can't do other things. They can't get married, start families, right. buy homes, uh, forget investing. So it's a huge cloud that's been, that's been made uh, partly because the money is so easy to borrow. And, you know, the government has made the money so easy to borrow. And student debt, I mean, some of these kids are just drowning in debt and they can't get out of it because you cannot bankrupt student debt. Right. It's one of the, it's probably the only debt in America you can't bankrupt, right. and so there it, it will follow them for forever. So that, that was the issue. I got fired up, and I mean I, I I do that more so. I mean the older I get, the more the more sleep I lose over things like um, wrongful convictions, yes, and criminal injustice, and mass incarceration, and sentencing disparities, and these issues that I know a lot about because I'm a lawyer and I. That I, I live in the law, I study the law. Um, these are issues I, I just want to write about. I don't want to preach. I, I want to illuminate. I want to expose. I want to, you know, if the best books I write are the books where I take an issue. And I don't do, this, every book is not an issue book. The early books certainly were not. But to take an issue and be able to, to, to weave a legal thriller around it, where, where the reader gets caught up in the story. And, and first and foremost, my books are to entertain. I mean, I, that's yes. what, I'm an entertainer. I, I want people to um, lose sleep reading these books. Um, <laughs> skip meals, call in late for work, lie, whatever you have to do. You know, if the pages are turning, finish the book. Uh, but but I, I'm gratified when people say, you know, I finished the book at 3 in the morning and I had never thought about that issue before. Yes. And, and, and now I at least know about it. Okay. But John, I honor you for having done that so much because, yes, you entertain us. You do every time. But at a point, the point at which you really began to address some of these things about the legal system and there's room for improvement, definitely. I just honor you so much for having done that. It doesn't, it just does get people thinking and knowing because if they don't, if they don't enter the system, now we we have about 50% of the people in the country that have now are entering it in some way or other, right. but if you don't enter it and see it in working, you don't realize that there is a lot of room for improvement. So you've really shed light on that and we honor you for it. I hope you all do too, but I certainly do. Well, thank you. It's, 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 again, it's frustrating to, to know a lot about the system and know that we could make so many reforms easily that would be fair and just, uh, save a tremendous amount of money, and also save tr a tremendous amount of human suffering because of the way we do things in the country. And, and it's just a matter of willpower. I think there's finally some movement on both sides, and there's, there's more bipartisan talk about criminal justice reform. You know, from the left, it's about human rights and what's fair to the moderate. It's a different uh, set of issues. But on the right, it's the cost. 
You know, we have 2.5 million people behind bars right now. And as our, as our prison population ages, the expense is becoming horrendous. When you put a person in jail for 40 years for three drug convictions, three strikes, you're out. That per, you have to feed them three times a day, and it, it costs 40,000 bucks a year to, to incarcerate somebody, 8,000 bucks a year to educate a kid. So we're not, you know, we're not thinking. And, and the, 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 the population ages, and it's becoming just horrendously expensive. So we're seeing, for the first time in a long time, some serious talk uh, from both sides about criminal justice reform. So I, there's a little bit of room for optimism. Yay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Well, you know, I said, I told you, I told you the first time I met you, I said, we, you asked me why I serve on the Judicial Commission, I said, we have the legal system we allow, not that we deserve. So right. if people, we can just talk about it, talk about it and see if we can do something. Right. It's wonderful. Right. Right. Absolutely wonderful. Okay. We're out of time. All right. Thank y'all for coming, and uh, we'll see you down the road. Thanks to my guest, Vivian Jennings and Candace Millard. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe and listen to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. We'll see you down the road with Book Tour.